We're looking at the subject today. May we add to worship what we want. If you look at chapter 9, you will see, according to the bulletin outline there, that Aaron consecrated himself, his sons, and the people. Chapter 9 now, not our text, but chapter 9 of Leviticus. This involved, if you look down through there, a sin offering, a burn offering, a fellowship offering, Verse 3 and following, together with a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. The purpose for these offerings is found in chapter 9, verse 7. Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burn offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. That's what the offerings were for, to make atonement. Repeated throughout chapter 9, we have reference to Aaron's sons presenting the blood of these various offerings to Aaron, their father, in this whole sacrificial system. Verse 9, verse 12, verse 18, they are taking the blood of these sacrifices and presenting them to their father as the offering. Now, the principle is explained by the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament where he writes, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9, verse 22. The animals are substitutes. They're living creatures that are substitutes being offered for, very frankly, us, or in the days of the Old Testament, the people. You should die for your sins, but I'm giving you all these substitutes, and they can die in your place and will placate my wrath towards you. Such atoning sacrifices had to begin with Aaron and his sons because they were sinners, just like the congregation of Israel were sinners. Let me read for you again from Hebrews 5. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, the priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. Hebrews 5, the first four verses. Yeah, the priests were sinners, pastors are sinners, missionaries are sinners, just like the people they minister to. And they all needed an atonement for their sin. This is precisely the procedure employed in Leviticus 9 on day one of the very first atoning sacrifices. Verse 22 states, Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them, and having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. He had finished the work of making atonement for himself and for the people that day. The context shows that when that occurred, Aaron then along with Moses entered the tent of meeting, which is their worship center, the tabernacle we know it to be, uh, of that day, 
They entered the tent of meeting, and it says there, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Verse 23, verse 24. Wow. What a a sight that must have been. What a time of great joy. The Shekinah glory was the best indicator that God was with them and that He was well pleased with their worship that day. Years later, when Solomon's temple, a more solid structure, of course, a permanent structure, when Solomon's temple was completed and the tabernacle, that tent, was being laid to rest after all those years, we again read, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Wow. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1 and 2. In the Lord's presence, boy, uh, they they just were not able to go in uh, to the most holy place because of the brilliance of God. So God is pleased, and I, I would say God is eager to reveal himself whenever we worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, verse 23. And think of this. If the blood of sacrificed animals can obtain entrance into God's favor and promote the display of his glory, what must it be like to understand what the writer of Hebrews relates about Jesus' atoning sacrifice of what? Himself. Let me read it for you. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices uh, day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins. You see the distinction being made here? He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. Think of Aaron and his sons. Men who are sinners is what he's saying. That's what the law produces. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, the Son of God, think of that, who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews 7, verse 26 and 28. The writer of Hebrews is doing... He's doing comparisons to show, really, what? There's no comparison. That's what he's doing. There were those priests, Aaron and his his family and so on. But then then there's our priests. There's Jesus, the high priest. And it's obvious that Jesus is a superior priest, and he has a superior sacrifice. Being without personal sin, his atoning sacrifice need be only for the sin of the people. People. And yet their sin, or I should say our sin, is so great and so extensive that nothing will appease God except Jesus himself, the Lamb of God. Only he can present and perfect a final sacrifice. Wow. 
Again, the writer of Hebrews says, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary. The true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one, namely Jesus, also to have something to offer. Listen to this. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary, get this now, that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Moses, you're just copying something. It's a pattern. He goes on. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. Hebrews 8 verses 1 through 6. Isn't that marvelous? What a wonderful text. So you got Aaron and his sons and they're working in a tent which is a copy of our pattern of what's in heaven. But what a, what a uh, paltry uh, comparison. Christ is serving in the true temple in, in glory and entering, the scripture goes on to say, entering with his own blood. Now in the case of Aaron and his service, on this first consecration of himself, his sons and the people, we are told, we have it in chapter 9, verse 4. This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Or again, verse 7. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. In other words, everything occurring on that day of worship in the wilderness was done strictly by the book, God's book, the Bible. And the Lord demonstrated his acceptance by appearing in all of his glory on that day. When we worship God in God's way, his glory is upon us, his blessing, his approval. And we may sense that. In Exodus 23, the scripture says, Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full life span. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. Exodus 23, verse 25 through 26. That is, if we 
if you Israelites will just worship me, I'm going to do these things for you. Worship is that important. The psalmist words are this way, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout out loud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Psalm 95, the first six verses. Give you a true picture of what God expects in worship. All of that being so, and all of that going on in chapter 9 of Leviticus, note secondly in your bulletin outline, Nadab and Abihu's great sin of presumptuous worship. Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. You can read them, Exodus 6, verse 23, lists them. Verse 6 lists some of them in our text. All of them in the priesthood. All of them responsible to lead the people in the worship of God. I mean, if you're going to be a leader, you have to walk out in the open. You have to be out there where all can see and for all to follow. That's the idea of leading, following what you do. We lead by example as well as by principle. It's a part of being a leader. As noted, all the sacrifices of Aaron and his sons in chapter 9 were by the book, as God commanded, step by step. They're following the protocol. But upon coming to chapter 10, we read that Nadab and Abihu took it upon themselves to offer, and Ivy says, unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Put the two words together. Unauthorized, contrary. Gives you a picture of what's going on here. Where then were they to get the fire for their censers? Reading from Leviticus 16. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord. And two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony. That's just another name for the Ark of the Covenant. Above the testimony so that he will not die. Leviticus 16 verse 11 through 13. Get the coals from the altar. Again, after God judged Korah, Dathan, and Abiram for their rebellion, remember the earth opened and swallowed them up, the people protested against Moses and Aaron the very next day, dumb thing to do, and God sent a death plague upon them. Then Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put incense in it along with fire from the altar. 
and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. And so Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. Number 16, verses 46 through 50. So here's a number of texts that tell us the fire for the censers into which they put the incense was to originate from the same altar where atonement sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. So, it was consecrated fire. It was sanctified fire. We're not told, in our text, the source of the fire used by Nadab and Abihu on this occasion, only that it was unauthorized, verse 1, It's a Hebrew word which means to be loathsome or or strange in the sense of alien, alien fire. It's even used of prostitutes. Now, none of these adjectives are appropriate for a fire coal that's used in the worship of God. I don't know where they got it. But it wasn't off the altar. And what we learn in all this is that Aaron, and by extension his sons, knew, they knew what God required in any burning of incense before him. No wonder then that God was highly offended at the presumption of these priests who certainly knew better and yet thought, they thought the worship of God was of little consequence that they could approach him in a loathsome display of arrogance without suffering dire consequences. They presumed to worship God in their way, following the desires of their own hearts. Like many in our day, people think worship is about them. How they feel, what makes them happy, what pleases them. It's almost as though they think God has not prescribed a particular protocol in approaching Him. They think all that is necessary is that a person be sincere in what he or she does. Now, I do not doubt in the least that Nadab and Abihu were sincere. They believed that as priests, not only was it their duty to lead the people in worship, They entered into that role with confidence. Maybe the wrong kind of confidence. Self-confidence. They believed that their actions would be approved. If they were wrong, they were dead wrong. They paid for the presumption with their lies. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died. Before the Lord. Verse 2. Ooh. If you read on down in the text, they were consumed, their clothes were not. Think about that. There was still a charred body there to be removed by 
the uncle's children. Why did this happen? We don't have to speculate. Verse 3, Moses then said to Aaron, 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 this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And we read, Aaron remained silent. Zippo. What else could he do? Smart move on Aaron's part. Leviticus 10, verse 3. Now, from this we know that the burning of incense by Aaron's sons using unauthorized fire was indeed contrary to God's command, verse 1. So, no matter how sincere a worshiper may be, he or she cannot add to God's word and believe that sincerity of purpose placates any and all infractions of God's ordinances. These priests thought they were worshiping God when in fact they dishonored him before the people and they profaned what was holy. I would put it this way. We need to beware of presumption with God. Do not think that anything you offer him will be acceptable simply because you are sincere of heart. Do not assume that anything goes... And that God should be happy to have his people worship him regardless of the procedures they employ. God is holy. And we must keep that in the forefront of our worship. He is not pleased. He is not pleased with the inventions of men. We talked about that the other week with regard to idols. And now we're talking about it with regard to procedures. That brings us to the second point in our outline this morning. Observing the regulative principle in worship. Hmm. The regulative principle. Oh boy, what's that? Let me read you the definition. It's in... (coughs) I got it off the internet and it's a good one. The regulative principle of worship in Christian theology teaches that the public worship of God should include those and only those elements that are instituted, commanded, or appointed by command or example in the Bible. In other words, it is the belief that God institutes in Scripture whatever He requires for worship in the church and everything else should be avoided. And I got that off theopedia.com. You can go online if you want to read that. Theopedia.com. That's a good definition of the regulative principle. If it isn't commanded in the scripture, if it isn't illustrated by principle in the scripture, it's not 
acceptable. They also quote from Calvin on this very thing of the regulative principle. And here's what Calvin writes. This is very good. Calvin writes, Moreover, the rule which distinguishes between pure and vitiated, vitiated means devalued. So the rule that distinguishes between pure and devalued worship is of universal application in order that we may not adopt any device which seems fit to ourselves. But look to the injunctions of him who alone is entitled to prescribe. Who would that be? That would be God, right? He goes on. Therefore, if we would have him to approve our worship, this rule, which he everywhere enforces with the strictest utmost, must be carefully observed. For there, er, for there is a twofold reason why the Lord, in condemning and prohibiting all fictitious worship, requires us to give obedience only to his own voice. First, it tends greatly to establish his authority that we do not follow our own pleasure, but depend entirely on his sovereignty. That's the reason for the rule. We look to him to tell us, okay, you're God, we're coming to worship you. Tell us, tell us what you want, what you approve, what you don't approve. And secondly, says Calvin, such is our folly that when we are left at liberty, all we are able to do is to go astray. Wow. And then, when once we have turned aside from the right path, there's no end to our wanderings until we get buried under a multitude of superstitions. Think of all the religions of the world. Justly, therefore, does the Lord, in order to assert his full right of dominion, strictly enjoin what he wishes us to do, and at once reject all human devices which are at variance with his command. Justly, too, does he in express terms, define our limits that we may not, by fabricating perverse modes of worship, provoke his anger against us. End quote. And that's John Calvin writing from the pamphlet The Necessity of Reformation in the Church. Well, Nadab and Abihu clearly violated this principle though Calvin wasn't yet born when he wrote his uh, explanation here. In Moses' words, they offered unauthorized fire that is not prescribed by God, and then negatively contrary to God's command, verse 1, they did their own thing, as we would say in the colloquialism of our day. Now, then, secondly, do we expect God's word to spell out every detail of worship? That's a good question. Well, God gives us two qualifiers, and they're in our text. They're both found in verse 3, by the way. Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. That's the first qualifier. Second qualifier, in the sight of all the people, also verse 3, in the sight of all the people, so he's talking about the corporate element, 
people are watching our worship in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Two H words. Holy, honored. That's what God's looking for us, from us, in our worship. Okay, let's, let's deal with these one by one. One constitutes holy worship. The Hebrew word here for holy means to set apart or to consecrate, to designate as sacred, to hallow. We have that in the Lord's Prayer, right? Hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name as we pray. It's the opposite of the common, the profane, the secular, the carnal. Holy is opposite of all that. We have in our hymnal, and we're going to sing it later on, an accurate hymn entitled, Holy, 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 written by Reginald Heber in 1823. And the third verse of that hymn says this, Holy, 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 Though the darkness hide thee, Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, Only thou art holy. There's none beside thee. Perfect in power. Perfect in love. And yeah, perfect in purity. That's a good definition of holy. Cannot escape us that the scripture behind these lyrics is Isaiah chapter 6 wherein the prophet envisioned God sitting on his throne surrounded by seraphim. Seraphim means the fiery ones. It's one of the names for the angels. And one cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6 verse 3. And it is in that same vision that Isaiah sees himself as undone. Listen to this. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I, a man, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah 6, verse 5. Woe is me, I'm ruined, the Hebrew, I'm cut off. Observe that it is the utter contrast of Isaiah seeing himself as a man of sinful speech compared to the thrice holy God which is enthroned upon his uh, throne surrounded by the flaming seraphs. It is that vision which causes him to conclude, I'm cut off, I'm ruined, I'll not make it out of here alive. In the presence of such a magnificent creator. You see, there is no bebopping. There is no uh, jazz jingling sing-song as he worships God in all of his holiness. Rather, there is fear. And there is hesitation. And there is caution. And it is only as God sends an angel with a hot coal, metaphorically speaking now, a hot coal from the altar, here we go again, from the altar to touch Isaiah's tongue that Isaiah may know, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah 6, verse 7. 
the holy God made Isaiah presentable. A sinner. The prophet sinner. The preacher sinner. Needs to be made holy. In our worship before God. Okay. And I ask this question. What makes these items, think about this now, hot coals, censers, incense, altars, tongs, what makes these instruments used in worship, what makes them holy? Aren't they just (laughs) instruments of worship made by the hands of men to be employed in service to God? I mean, what's the difference? I'm not being smart here. What is the difference, if any, between your charcoal grill and its hot coals, and the steel shovel used to transport the coals to a safe place, and the tongs that you use to move things around on the grill, or to reposition the coals, or the punk incense that you burn to keep away the mosquitoes while you're working on the grill. What's the difference between that and what we're reading about? Weren't all... The utensils employed by Nadab and Abihu, censers, coal, incense, manufactured by Israel's craftsmen? Let me read it for you. They made the altar of incense, cut out of acacia wood. It was square, a cubit long, a cubit wide, two cubits high, its horns of one piece with it. They overlaid the top and all the sides of the horns with pure gold and made a gold molding around it. They made two gold rings below the molding, two on the opposite side to hold the poles used to carry it. They made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. They also made the sacred anointing oil and the pure fragrant incense, the work of perfumers. Exodus 37, verse 25 through 29. And the text goes on to say, They built the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Three cubits high, it was square, five cubits long, five cubits wide. They made a horn at each of the four corners, so that the horns of the altar were of one piece. And they overlaid the altar with bronze. They made all the utensils of bronze. It's pots, shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, fire pans. They made a grating for the altar, a bronze network to be under its ledge, halfway up the altar. Exodus 38, 1 through 4. Yeah, these are men making all these things, right? And then, in chapter 40, after all the work was completed, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the ark of the testimony in it and shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table. Set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand. Set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the testimony and put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar and burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar. Put water in the basin. Set up the courtyard around it. Put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and the the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all the utensils. Consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. 
Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting. Wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments. Anoint him. Consecrate him so that he may serve as priest. Bring his sons. Dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so that they may serve me as priests. Exodus 40, verse 1 and following. And then, and then, when they had done all this, something stupendous occurred. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35. What made the tabernacle and all its utensils and its furnitures holy and therefore off limits thereafter to all except the priests acting in their official capacity was the consecration of everything by the anointing oil confirmed and approved by God's glory that filled the tabernacle. Now listen. Yeah, all these things were made by men, sinful men, with their hands and their artistic skills. Goldsmiths, silversmiths, tapestry weavers, you know, the whole thing. But after this occasion, From that point on, all those items were deemed holy because they had been consecrated to the Lord. No longer were these items to be viewed as the ordinary wares of silversmiths and carpenters. No, 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 no. There was nothing ordinary about them at all. God's presence and blessing made them holy. And just think of it this. They were set apart. Set apart. For God. And so the first qualifier in worshiping God is we're to treat God as the Holy One that He is. The second qualifier is also in verse 3. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. The Hebrew basic meaning for this word honored means to weigh down or to make heavy. Uh, this doesn't sound like a good, and good definition of honor, but let me read on. To consider to be weighty or worthy of honor, respect, and all that goes with it. It's the kind of reaction given to dignitaries, to people of distinction, the weighty of society, you see, The movers, the shakers who comprise what men call princes and kings. Give them the weight that's their due. The due of their position. Don't treat them slovingly. Don't treat them with disdain. Give them their due honor, their due weight. What we have in our present society is much disrespect. 
especially among the young and the naive. The push for equality among men has resulted in people placing God on their own plane, there they are imaging God, in which God is viewed as no more worthy of honor than the most base characters in society. This can even happen in the religious community. Jesus, think about this, Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of performing miracles by the power of the devil. The Son of God is being accused of being demonically empowered. He protested, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Listen to this. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And they retorted, Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I didn't know him, I'd be a liar just like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. John 8, verse 49 through 56. Paul warns us, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed, among the Gentiles, the people of the world, because of you. Romans 2, verse 23 and 24. What we profess, brethren, we had better live. Because the sin of Aaron's sons was a breach of God's requirements to treat the things of God as holy. And in the sight of all the people, that is in public worship in particular, to be sure that we're honoring God, giving Him the weight that is due His name. Daniel's indictment of Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, hits a little too close to home for comfort. Let me read it. You have set yourself up, Daniel says to him, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and the gods of gold and of bronze, iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but... You did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Daniel 5, verse 23. See, that's where men get sidetracked. They get into the accoutrements of worship. And they think they can do anything. And God will just smile and be happy. Daniel says, no, you didn't honor the God who holds your life in his hand. So, 
profanity, and I'm not thinking of just words here, profane words, but profane actions. Profanity and dishonor of God are the two terrible sins of Nadab and Abihu and their priestly office. Let me put it this way. Their priestly office could not save them. Wow, that's sobering. Your position is no better as a believer if you do the same wickedness. Peter writing to the church, to the church now. Here's what he says. He's quoting God. But just as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 1 Peter 1 verse 15 and 16. The beauty of all this is that we're not holy in and of ourselves but under the blood of Christ that great and holy sacrifice he makes us suitable to come before his presence. Hopefully with gladness. Hopefully with joy in our Won't become paranoid now, but be careful, be cautious with regard to worship. The elders watch this with regard to our church. We don't just do anything and say, oh, God will be happy with that. We think about, will this, is this holy? Will this honor God? Or are we doing something that he has not commanded us? Let's pray. Holy Father, we do thank you for the protocols of worship that we're seeing in the scripture. May we add, may we add anything we want in our worship to you? No, clearly from this text and others we have looked at this morning, the things that must be used in worship must honor your holiness and must honor your person. Keep us from the profane, Lord. Keep us from the common, the secular. Help us to see that God is set apart from us. Isaiah saw it when he, <laughs> when he saw you high and holy lifted up. He saw the difference between you and himself. And he was ashamed and he, he considered himself ruined. We're ruined too if it were not for the covering blood of Jesus Christ. And if there's one here this morning that knows not you and has this whole idea of dishonor and does not give you the weight of your position, does not acknowledge you as creator and Lord and thinks that they, he or she, is your equal or maybe even superior to you because each person thinks they are their own God and the masters of their own destiny. Lord, rebuke them this day. Bring them by your grace to humility of purpose and repentance of heart for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing